Welcome to Ministers Talking Sh**, a weekly program where Rev Briz and Rev Z and their guests chat about current affairs, world events, spiritual principles, and any old sh** they want to talk about. Based on the new thought philosophy and ancient wisdoms, Ministers Talking Sh** shares a visionary perspective of the evolving spiral called spiritual living. Join us each week as we explore the emerging paradigm of life on planet Earth and beyond. And good morning, dear ones. Rev Briz with you here. Rev Z on this end. And we're a couple of ministers talking shit. <laughs> and today we want to continue a conversation we've been having and bring in a new voice and bring in a, a dear friend of ours all the way from Lyon, France. Reverend Jim Lockhart is with us. Good morning, Jim. Hello. So, folks, we've really got something special for, for you today. Last week at the end of our episode, Rev Z and I started looking at this concept of what does it mean to defund the police? And we both immediately knew we needed to have a, a conversation with Reverend Jim. Now, I want you to know, Reverend Jim, before he became Reverend Jim, uh, has was in the police force for close to 25 years, both in Maryland, in the Metro-Dade uh, police force in Miami for close to uh, a large portion of that over again, close to 25 years in the police force and has a very unique perspective on not only this topic, but the history of policing, the interaction of police with uh, society in America. We can't think of a bigger expert to talk with because Reverend Jim also then, upon his retirement, moved into the ministry. He is an ordained minister with the Centers for Spiritual Living and is a has a great blog where he shares new thought and evolutionary uh, philosophy and concepts and perspectives it's called new thought evolutionary creating the beloved community together i'll make sure you have links to that and he recently penned an article wrote an article defunding the police as a compassionate act so again we are very very excited to have reverend jim here with us today hello sir welcome 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 Hello, glad to be here. Uh, I'm going to hand this over to Rev Z to get us started today. He's got our first question for Rev uh, Jim. We want to, again, we've got a, about a half an hour here, folks, to dig in and get started on this conversation. What does it look like to defund the police? Great. Thanks, Robert. And good morning, Jim. Glad you could uh, be with us this morning. And, you know, I, I want to probably just first start and ask the question, part of the, the catalyst, if you will, that started uh, this whole defund the police, or at least brought it forth to the limelight, is the overwhelming presence, if you will, of police force and how they operate in black and minority communities. And I know one of the things that's come up a lot in this, in this avenue, if you will, is the whole idea of black codes which uh, started, actually started before slavery, but they really came into their current namesake, if you will, in uh, 1865, 1866, about how to basically police African-Americans, freed or unfreed. Just like to get your input on that, if you could, and how that maybe funnels into what people are trying to get to happen with the defund the police act. Okay, well, uh, I think 
it's good that you bring that up because history is really an important aspect of, of how we got where we are. And, and the black codes, which were, you know, police departments in the U.S. as we know them today actually began as uh, slave patrols where there were groups of men would get together to track down slaves that may have escaped or, or handle situations, you know, involving slaves. The exception to that would be the Metropolitan Police Department in New York, which sort of began modeled on the London Police Department. That's another another way that policing began. But throughout, I would say that what began around that time was essentially a, a system that was largely based on racism that over time became part of a larger system, criminal justice system that has had racist components. And then in this, in the second half of the 20th century and the early part of this century, we had two situations that really turbocharged the way police police. And so you began with an with a, a inherently racist system. There were certainly good people in it in many cases, but the system itself was weighted uh, to kind of keep control of groups of people that were not part of the power elite. So the first thing that happened that was a turbocharging factor was the war on drugs, which was begun in earnest in the late 1960s, early 1970s under the under the Nixon administration. And, you know, it's since been revealed that a big part of that war on drugs was to target African-American communities and to make them not only uh, not only to enforce law there more more strictly and more brutally, but to make them look bad in the eyes of white America. So that continued for a while and you began to see the militarization of the police where the police became in earnest an occupying force, a militaristic occupying force. And I was in law enforcement beginning in 1972. I was initially in a resort town, so it wasn't quite the same. But when I moved down to South Florida, I certainly saw that happening because at that point you had riot. The McGuffey riots had just occurred in Miami a year before I got there. And there was a, you know, everything was very segregated and the policing was very different in the uh, in the black and Hispanic communities as compared to what it was in white communities. The second turbocharging event was 9-11. And the result of that was a heavy emphasis on anti-terrorism. And all of a sudden, all this really heavy duty military equipment became available through so-called surplus to uh, from the military to police departments. And there are just under 18,000 police departments in the United States. And just about all of them have received equipment over the last 20 to 25 years from armored personnel carriers to Humvees to riot gear to, you know, a whole a whole host of things. And the training of police has become more militaristic. The focus of the part of the job that involves the use of force, whether that's hand-to-hand combat or whether it's using a firearm, deadly weapon, has increased in terms of the proportionality of what's trained. And the I and and for in most places, not all, but in most places, ideas like community policing and walking a beat have gone away. So you've had you've had a cultural distancing from communities. And the inter and the interesting thing during that last 20 to 20, 20 to 30 years 
is in our major metropolitan areas and the major cities, the police forces are majority minority members. That police forces in places like Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, Baltimore, Atlanta are are largely, if not majority, minority officers and often led by African-American police chiefs. Yet we still see the same kind of occupation tactics and so forth that are that are creating the kind of situation that has, you know, it continues to erupt. It erupts every so often. And the question is, is this the eruption that's going to get us to change? So that's a whole lot in a nutshell. But I think it's important to see that uh, the system that began back around the time of the Civil War has metastasized in the past half a century or more into something that's much, much more uh, deadly. And on top of that, you have mass incarceration and and so forth and so on. So there's just a, a real... Uh, issue. And it's no wonder that people are in the streets today. Thanks, Jim. That, that's, a, that's a good summation and pinpoint of, of uh, highlights that cause us to get where we are today. And Jim, uh, the, I also thank you so much. It, it's a great summation. And so we, here's where I'm at. We know the war on drugs to be ineffective. We know that if you want to say it, the war has been lost, uh, it, it was never really effective. Uh, however, it did marginalize and it did put a layer of oppression on a, a few a couple of generations, specifically as we were talking about young black African-American men. Uh, now that we are open, and this is my perspective of defunding the police, we recognize there was this huge influx of money and military equipment, and along with that, a consciousness and the training and all of that to create this very warrior-based, controlling, occupying force, as you said, mil militaristic occupying force. When I hear defund the police, that's what I think of. Let's get back to... Uh, the cop on the beat. Let's get back to police knowing who they're dealing with. Let's get back to uh, chasing the suspect rather than shooting them in the back as they run away. With all that we've done and, and all that we've traversed to get to where we are, is that possible? Is it possible to, and I, you know, we're about change. It's not always about going backwards, but is it possible to regain anything from the police, its history, and its culture that can support us as a, as a society moving forward? Well, I think the answer to that is yes, but there's another thread of history that you have to look at too, and that began in the 1980s with uh, the defunding of social services and especially mental health services in the United States. Now, there were certainly a lot of uh, issues with much of the mental health care that was going on in the U.S., especially in some of the bigger asylums and so forth. But during the Reagan presidency, uh, basically funding was cut for residential mental health programs to, and, and cut for other kinds of programs. So people that were mentally ill were getting less treatment and there weren't options for people that were seriously mentally ill. Now, that has turned into a huge issue with homelessness 
It has turned into a huge issue of police being the only real municipal service that hasn't been cut other than possibly fire uh, services and having to take on the accountability to deal with people who are disturbed, people who are have emotional issues, people that would normally under the old system be getting treatment. And so you send a, you know, we have cases today where they send people in SWAT gear, uh, you know, the heavy tactical gear to deal with a mentally ill person who is not armed or anything and, and probably could be handled better by uh, some kind of a health services person or something like that. So the police, defunding the police to me is a, the reason I say it can be a compassionate act is if you pare down the police department to what they do best and restore some of the other ancillary services that have been taken away, you end up with a more compassionate community response to meet people's needs. You still have racism to deal with. You still have sexism to deal with and classism to deal with. But you, you're, you can deal with it in a different way when you have appropriate structures in place to handle the kinds of calls for service that, that we get in our cities and, and counties and in the rural areas. Yeah, and, and that's, that's interesting, Jim, because, you know, I remember at one point that the criminal justice system had a, uh, a leaning, if you will, even if it was just a little bit, to rehabilitation, where if, if young people, for whatever reason, got caught up in the system, they could go in and get a GED or they could learn a trade. So potentially the outcome, once they got out, was not recidivism because they were able to at least continue with some kind of uh, job or some kind of work that would... Uh, that would allow them to keep going. So part of this, I understand, part of the defunding is to allow the funds that are now going into this heavy militarized effect to be moved over to social services like counseling and, as you indicated, military service, uh, mental health services, and maybe some educational service, especially for a lot of the younger members who've been put into this system who could be out in school, in high school, finishing high school or going to college. So that would, that's an interesting piece of how that should fold, unfold, rather. Yeah, for sure. The prison situation is disgraceful. And again, it's largely a, the effect of the war on drugs combined with uh, legislation in the 90s to uh, basically people in jail for longer times for longer sentences and, and mainly in drug cases if you were to if, if we were to you know if you want to look at systemic change and you know i'm living in europe now so i i'm close to some places that have done some very things in a very different way for example the netherlands you know notorious for amsterdam but they've legalized most drugs portugal's legalized all drugs and what you end up with is nobody's in jail for drugs and when drugs are legalized and they're able to be obtained through legal channels, all of the crime that goes into, or maybe not all, but the, the vast majority of crime that goes into people trying to get money to buy drugs goes away. And you have a, you have a significant change. You know, when I walk here in Lyon, which is a city metropolitan area of 2.2 million people, they may have 20 shootings a year. 
And everyone is big news. You know, it's like, wow, I can't believe somebody got shot. And that, you know, there, there's a different culture here. That's true. But the way the police operate is different. The way there's there's ample social services here and so forth. And I don't always like to compare to Europe, but it does tend to be a, a good way to compare. And Europe, some of the European countries are ahead of the U.S. in terms of seeing these issues not at, as targets of enforcement, but as targets to tr- for treatment, excuse me, and as you say, for rehabilitation. I think the prisons gave up on rehabilitation in the 70s uh, because there were so many people being locked up for drugs. There was no way to run a consistent program, and people were going through the system very quickly and being moved from place to place. And then when you add privatized prisons, you know, that's kind of the end of that game because the private privatized prisons aren't going to be interested in rehabilitation. So we built a system based on some, in my opinion, some very bad decisions that were made some time ago. And that when you put them on top of a system that's already inherently racist, it, it expands the negative effects. So what we need, you know, we have 17 thousand nine hundred and some police department or or law enforcement agencies in the United States. Every one of them will have to be part of a program that's somewhat separate because every one of them, with the exception of the federal programs, the federal agencies are under different jurisdictions that have different problems and different issues and different degrees of social service. So the idea that this is a single conversation is in error. This is, a, this is a conversation that has to happen thousands of times in different parts of the country and where solutions or new programs or new way, new approaches are going to have to be tailored to local needs, to local politics, and so forth. So there's going to be, I think, a continuing amount of frustration um, because there isn't an on-off switch to deal with this situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've seen... In my conversations and what I've been seeing, there's this push that just says, well, let's just let's just retrain the police. That's all we really need. We just need to retrain everybody and do some compassion training and get rid of this warrior training stuff and uh, and the and change the mindset, if you will. Uh, However, to me, that also says, well, at that point, why don't we just disband all police and institute a federal police system and a system where these are the parameters and you've got your division and you learn your division. It, there's my, pers- the question I'm getting here too with Jim is there are about a million perspectives of how we, how this could or won't work. Uh, everybody's got one perspective and it's, it's so deep. It's so multi-layered. Uh, uh, folks, we know we can't possibly cover everything that wants to be shared and discussed around this topic in this short of a program. Uh, but what we would like to do, Jim, is uh, have you paint a picture for us? What's a vision? Now, also understanding that uh, you do a lot of study and a lot of teaching uh, around evolutionary theory and uh, things of that nature. What, if you would, cast a vision for us, what's your perspective of a an evolutionary police force or a system of policing or how do we take and admitting the police have been overloaded how do we take everything that should be 
in a police department or in their realm of social service, what's the future of that look like? Well, the first thing I'll say, it maybe is not the most hopeful statement, but I'm reminded of a quote by the uh, uh, management guru, Peter Drucker, who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think you could say you could change that a little bit and say culture eats training for breakfast. So that's not a training issue. I was a, I was the commander of the police academy in uh, South Florida for my department in South Florida for a while. And I worked in training for many years. And I, you know, when you train, you can train all you want in social sensitivity issues and cultural sensitivity. But when that person goes back to their work site with their work partners and the dom the, if the dominant culture is hasn't changed, they're not going to change. So what I think has to happen is more of a structural systemic approach where you need, you know, this begins with people that know how to govern being put into office, being elected into office, and then those people appointing department heads and so forth that, that sort of understand the dynamics that need to unfold. And, and policing needs to be part, needs to be seen as part of a systemic approach to governance, to service, to, you know, you have, you have police and fire and you have corrections and you have courts and you have but you also have public works and you have transportation and you have all the different things that a, that a, a local government or, or a state government has to, to do. And it all needs to be incorporated into a culture of service. And people need to be held accountable to the values of that culture. And where we've gone with this is, you know, you, you, there's going to be crime. There's going to be violent crime. There's going to be situations where you're going to need an armed response. Um, that's not going to just magically go away because the police change the way they, they do things. What can happen a lot is, you know, the realization that sometimes if a police officer doesn't show up, things just kind of resolve themselves. And, you know, you can't predict what's, when that's going to happen or whatever. But I, you know, the idea that a police officer say has to be in every school and you see six year olds getting arrested for pushing us uh, another student. I mean, my God, that, you know, what a waste of police resources and what a horrible way to treat children, you know, um, just as an example. So how do you, how would a, how would a healthy governing system look at this particular aspect of whatever it is they're looking at? from policing to fire service to mental health issues to domestic violence and all of the various things, that to me is what needs to happen is let's look at it through fresh eyes. Let's look at it systemically, agencies working together, uh, you know, budgets being somewhat fluid to meet evolving needs and things like that. And also the recognition that you have to have citizen buy-in to the kinds of changes that you want to make. And there's going to be some people that are going to be tough sells uh, because they've seen government fail over and over and over and over in terms of uh, protecting them and keeping them safe and, and treating them equally. So, but I think that it begins with the kinds of leaders that people will at least trust enough to give them a chance. And that's, made doubly difficult by the current political situation, let's say, of, uh, you know, people don't want to reach across the aisle because the other person has to be seen as the enemy. Yeah. 
that, that makes it tougher as well. But, you know, what you end up with is you end up with some conservative models of this and you end up with some more liberal models of this and you see what works. Right. That's a, a great point, there, Jim, because there is no there is no uh, werewolf approach to this, i.e. there is no one silver bullet that's going to fix it all. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to begin to look at is a systemic, which is what everyone is pointing to, a systemic way of looking at these issues that involve more than one approach and more than one interrelated things to help relieve the pressure off the system so that we can begin to identify and rectify issues that are overwhelming and then begin to normalize the system. Yeah. And that's tough to do in a two-year election cycle. Yes. And what I heard you saying, Jim, right, there is a, an incredible distrust for our federal government in this country, in America, uh, and specifically in our leadership. And right now, I, I, I'll admit, I don't trust our current president. And I also recognize that while I did trust the preceding president, there was a vast portion of our population that didn't trust Barack Obama and didn't trust his presidency. We've been, and my, my question jumped to, when did we stop really trusting that the president had the country's best issue, best, best, highest and best in mind? And I goes back a ways, I think. <laughs> well, I would, my response to that would be, we've never had that trust. It just is more vocal today. Um, my, I remember the conversations when I was a little, when I was a kid in the fifties and boy, the, you know, the men, the men would argue about who was in the president and what crook, the crook was always in the other party. And, you know, it wasn't that much different. It's just today you have this amplification through social media and through conservative versus liberal media and people silo, you know, back, you know, my dad and the guy he didn't like both went home and watched Walter Cronkite for their news and they both read the same newspaper. Right. So that, you know, the dynamic of having your own facts and your own and not having to hear the other side uh, is huge. Vietnam, you know, the, go back to Vietnam, the Vietnam war, the peace movement would not have worked had it not been for network television that everybody had to watch. Right. Um, and I, you, you can't go back to that. So, so the question we have to have is how do we go forward given the structure we have in communication and how do we try to create avenues for people to connect that are not laden with this ideological uh, baggage on either side? The, the lack of trust in the federal government is well earned. And the same is true of many local governments, particularly if you're a minority. And uh, when I was a cop, I never heard of I never heard a police executive or a politician off camera who was you know out of earshot of anybody that could hear say we've got to treat minorities better. I never heard that once. Mm. Wow. Well, you know, folks, uh, I think that's uh, and looking at the clock, I think we've reached that point in our show today where. I trust that you've heard some things here that have changed maybe your perspective or at least provided a new light on your perspective 
of this really deep topic and this widespread topic of defunding the police. Jim, we want to say thank you so much for being with us here today uh, and being a part of this. It's been very enlightening to have you with us, and uh, I, I have a sense we'd love to have you back again in the future. For sure. Sounds great. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely been enlightening, and um, I'm sure we will we will be talking about this topic for a while because I don't think it's going away no time soon. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, for everyone listening, thank you so much, dear ones, for giving us your time and attention today. I want to do just a couple of quick little announcements here. Um, number one, I'll put these this information in the notes for today's program. Uh, Reverend Jim is offering a, an online workshop coming up in July here of 2020, uh, starting July 21st. It's an online series on Tuesdays all around the hero's journey. And so you will learn the stages of the universal mythical model developed by Joseph Campbell, gain tools and techniques to develop a healthy, empowering perspective and create a personal plan to live the life you desire and how you can contribute to the greater good. So we'll make sure that you have a way to connect with that information, encourage you to explore more of Reverend Jim's work, including his blog, uh, New Thought Evolutionary, Creating the Beloved Community Together. So I'll make sure you have all of those links. And please do remember that this program is made possible by the New Thought Media Network, the most positively inspiring media network on the planet at this time. So please check out newthoughtmedia.org. All right. Well, thanks again, Jim, for being with us. Uh, thank you, Z, for being here today. Hey, hey. It's a pleasure. We'll see you all again next time, folks, on Ministers Talking Shit. <laughs> Have a good one. And thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ministers Talking Shit. We'll be back again next week with more commentary on current affairs, world events, and any other sh** our ministers want to talk about. And if you found value here, please share our sh** with your friends. Until next time, peace and blessings.